Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Amen. Our scripture reading before going to the table this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 13 this morning. There we read, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. You may be seated. Adolf Hitler has been called many things. Probably the best description of this man was that he was a megalomaniac, a man consumed with greatness, with his own greatness, with the greatness of the Third Reich and the German race. And he demonstrated that greatness through dominance, complete and utter dominance of the whole world if he could achieve it. Nothing or no one would stand in his way of achieving his end and his goals. Not even the truth. Hitler was a liar. He lied to Chamberlain about a peace treaty. So as Chamberlain went back to his own country and proclaimed that we have achieved peace in our own time, Hitler was mobilizing his blitzkrieg. And he not only lied to those that he saw as his enemies, he lied to his own people with embellished stories and propaganda and outright falsehood. He is quoted with saying, we can lie to the people now because after we are victorious, they will forget it. In other words, his ends justifies the means. Whatever means necessary, no matter the consequences, and you know the consequences, that as a result, 50 to 80 million people died during that period of our history. And these lies and this power-hungry power grab that is so prevalent in our world is something that is not new at all. This is the pattern that goes back to the very beginning of time with the original megalomaniac, Satan himself, who is the father of lies. 
Remember, it was Satan that wanted to demonstrate his own greatness, to demonstrate his own powers, and he broke ranks against the Creator God, the very one that created him. And as a result, he plunged all of creation into that reality that we know so well, that present reality, one of pain and one of suffering. And we experience that fall every day, do we not? Indirectly through a fallen creation, through fallen bodies, as well as directly through sin and hostility and aggression and the assaults of this world. And we are not immune to it. And we, as a result, can be caught in the crossfire. We can become sufferers. Through the nature of this fallen world, through the sins done against us, the indignation, as a result, we struggle in this world, do we not? And Peter is writing to those that have experienced just that, that have experienced hostility and persecution and, yes, suffering. As a result of the government, as a result of the culture they live in. And Peter is writing this letter to them. And he's telling them, how is it that Christians are to respond? And the truth of what Peter lays out is not just for how they should respond. It's how we should respond, even today. Last week, we saw that we are to keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, that we're not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, this is how we are not to respond. But our passage this morning is showing us how we should respond. Indeed, how we should view suffering as a whole. And so we'll look at that this morning in two points, right perspective on suffering and then the right response to it. First, right perspective on suffering. As has been said many times before, Peter's letter is one of hope. If you've read my Presbyview article this month, which I'm confident all of you have, and wait upon it with bated breath, then you know that hope is absolutely necessary. That without hope, that can be the very simple definition and diagnosis of depression. That we need hope, that we are people in need of hope. And that is absolutely true of those that Peter is writing to because of the circumstances that they were in. They were people in despair, without hope, coming as a result of suffering. And as we've seen, and we'll see again this morning, and even we'll see in the coming weeks, that suffering is a dominant theme of First Peter. We see it in chapter 1, chapter 2. We're seeing it here in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 4. Yet, equally prevalent in this book is this theme of hope. 
And we see it here as well. As Peter says, always be ready. Ready with what? Well, ready to give the reason for hope that is within you. And so these two themes are intertwined. So much so that many have entitled 1 Peter, Hope Amidst Suffering. And no doubt that is appropriate. But I would even go farther and say that a better theme of 1 Peter is hope because of suffering. And you might say, well, how can that be? How can you have hope because of suffering? Hope and suffering are antithetical. They are opposites. They are enemies of one another. And that would be true if we adopt the world's philosophy that pain and suffering are to be avoided at all costs, that we are to insulate ourselves from it. Because most would say that there is nothing good that can come from pain. There is nothing beneficial that can come from suffering. But that is not how the Bible views it. And we are not to take a 21st century American view of pain and suffering. We're to take a biblical view. And how the, the Bible views suffering is that there is an opportunity for hope. That indeed, this is the seed bed for hope to sprout and to grow. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it this way. When is it that you look forward? When do you long for better days? When things are going well or when things are not? When all is great or not so much? Indeed, we look forward and have hope when our present reality is not all that we want it to be. And we can either have a hope so that our circumstance would change, or we can have a present hope right now, even in the midst of suffering and because of suffering. Let me try to explain it this way with an example, an analogy. I've had two very different experiences on airlines, and no doubt you have as well. There's the flight where everything goes well. Where you get to enjoy a good book and the stewardess is coming around and asking if you would like to have anything else and you are comfortable, or at least as comfortable as you can be on an airplane. And the other is when you hit turbulence and you are white-faced, clutching those arm rests with your fingernails and your stomach is turning. On the first flight, what is an extra 15 or 20 minutes? Right? All is good. And you are content. But on the second, you want to be on solid ground. You can't wait until that plane lands. And so on the two, which one is hope needed? 
There's no hope needed when there is smooth sailing, when you are comfortable in the moment. But the second, you just want to be off of that place and off of that torture machine and you want to be on solid ground. And I think that is a a good analogy for how the Lord can allow the turbulence of life to enter in. So as to cling to that which really matters to be on the solid ground of God's truth. To have hope in that which is not temporal, but that which is everlasting. To look to Christ and not to the world for comforts. And it takes trials, it takes affliction, it takes suffering for us to achieve this. I wish it didn't. I wish those things would come naturally. But very rarely does it come without the use of that which is oftentimes seemingly unpleasant. Because in that midst, there is that opportunity, as I said, for hope. Opportunity for growth and maturity in our Christian walk. It's there in the storms of life that our roots can really begin to go deep. And find the things that are really of worth. And that is why I think the Bible does not avoid this subject of suffering. But sees it as something that can be used for God's plan and purpose even in your life. You remember what James says. Brothers, count it all joy when you face trials. Of various kinds. But notice what Peter says here. Very much echoing James. He said if you should suffer. For righteousness sake. You will be blessed. And you might say blessed Peter. I don't think you understand. The definition of that word. Nor do I want that type of blessing. But he says, if you suffer, you will be blessed. That's the testimony of the scriptures. That there is joy in trials. There is blessing in suffering. Because it gives you a hope and a deeper faith. It gives you a love for Christ and of those things of eternal manners. There is righteousness in suffering. Not as a merit, not as something that you gain, but in valuing your salvation. And seeing the worth of your liberty. For hating sin and its consequences. And that longing for freedom. That longing for and love for Christ. And so before we go on to our response to suffering, let me ask you, is this how you... View your difficulties, your present trials and suffering, perhaps even persecution in one way or another. It's very hard to do so if we just look at the circumstances. If we just look at what is going on in our life, that only brings hopelessness and despair. But when we look to Christ in these difficulties and in the uncomfortableness 
and see it for what it's worth, that there can be good and blessings. It's an opportunity for us to kind of step behind the veil, so to speak, to, to glance down from on high and to, to be able to have an eternal perspective. And as a result, we can have hope. As I said, not a hope so, but a real and certain hope that God is, is good and that His blessings will forever flow, even in this. And so if this is your current circumstances, if you're currently going through hardships, if you're going through a season where you feel like you're, you're walking through the wilderness, that your, your spiritual life is, is non-existent, there's that dryness of soul and of, of spirit, do not think that the Lord has forgotten. Do not think that the the Lord has forsaken you. He may be granting that that joy and that hope and even, yes, blessings in the midst of this present suffering. You might have to dig deep. You might have to look for it, but I guarantee it is there because the hope of scriptures promise it. Charles Spurgeon, who is no stranger to suffering, wrote this, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And sometimes we experience the waves of this life, but it's pushing us to Christ, not farther away. Well, second then, what is the right response to suffering. As mentioned before, Peter's readers were experiencing firsthand persecution, and to that degree, I don't think any of us have experienced that. But there are those, even in our present reality around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are experiencing that. And as you see in our our call to prayer every week, there is a section on the persecuted church, and that is by design. That we are to, to remember our brothers and sisters, as Hebrews says, that are put in prison and those that have been mistreated. And we are to experience suffering, in a sense, through them, to remember them in their chains. So that even though we are not perhaps experiencing that type of persecution, we should not be ignorant of it. Nor should we think that it couldn't or wouldn't happen here. But the suffering that we experience, if we experience it directly by the hands of others or indirectly through the fallen nature of this world, the response, I think, is still the same. And Peter lays out for us both an inward response and an outward one. An inward posture that we need to have in our heart and in our spirit and an outward reaction to it. And so let's briefly look at those. First, the inward posture. And what I think Peter would first say to us is that we must understand that it's there and we must know that it's coming. As they say, you don't need to look for trouble. Trouble will come looking for you. And that is true. We are not to be masochists. We're not to be looking for problems nor spurring them on. As Peter begins, we're to be zealous for what is good. 
But at the same time, it says, but when you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. In other words, at times we will experience the sins of this world. We can be innocent sufferers. Suffering that we don't bring upon ourselves necessarily, but that is brought upon us from the outside. Suffering for what is right, suffering for what is good, suffering for what is righteous. And in so much as that happens, we should not be surprised. In fact, Peter will say in chapter 4, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test you as something as though something strange were happening to you. And so Peter would say we should expect those things to come. In verse 15, he says we should always be ready, always be prepared. We should have that same motto as the the Boy Scouts, that we should be be ready, that we should be prepared for for those things that will come, knowing that they will come, knowing that the, the world and the flesh and the devil are attacking us where we're at. But he goes on to say, when it does come, when it does happen, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That doesn't mean that we enjoy it. doesn't mean that, in, to some degree, we aren't afraid. No, being afraid in the midst of trouble and suffering is to, to be human. But we're not to be crippled by fear. We're not to be immobilized by it. If you were with us on Sunday night a week ago, Pastor Jim Whittle said, Courage is not the absence of fear. Rather, it's being faithful despite our fears, despite being afraid. Being faithful to the Lord and doing that which he still calls us to do, to be faithful to him. That's what is true courage in the face of evil. And he goes on here to say that we're to be ready, we're to be prepared, we're to face our sufferings with courage because I think he gives the key here in verse 15, because your hearts honor Christ. The Lord is holy. Literally it says, make holy Christ the Lord in your hearts. Now we don't ever add to Christ's holiness. He is holy all by himself. But what Peter is saying is that Before this takes place, before you experience these sufferings, as you experience these trials, there needs to be a setting apart of Christ in your heart. Not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. That He is the sovereign Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That we, in a sense, set in our hearts the Holy of Holies. That Christ is prime and is situated there. And because He is our Lord, that we are submitted to Him in all things, whatsoever comes to pass. Because He has either ordained or has allowed for it to take place. And so through that sovereignty, we have comfort. We have Hope, and I would say that's the only place we can find hope 
that everything that takes place is not taking place by a mistake. Or some oversights in the divine plan of God. But that we are confident that whatever has come to pass has crossed the desk of the Almighty God. And He has allowed for it to take place in our lives. I would tell you that's the only place where you can find hope. That's the only place you can find comfort. In other words, it's just complete despair. It's hopelessness. But we can be confident that God is using this for his purpose and for his means and his ends. That's how Joseph can say to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. This is how Job, through all of his suffering and his loss, can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord in both the giving and in the taking away. I can say to his wife, when his wife says to him, why do you not just curse God and die? He can testify to his wife, should we receive good from God? And yet not receive evil. It's how Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1. That the Lord has used my imprisonment. For his purpose. For the advancement of the gospel. It's because these men had sanctified. They had made Christ holy in their hearts. And they were committed to that. That is the only place that we can take whatever comes before us. And face it with courage. Continue to be faithful to God in the midst of our fears. It's the only place we can find hope and joy. And yes, blessing in the midst of it. It begins with that inward heart posture. Being reminded of who you are in the light of who God is. And submitting to that. But there's an outward response as well, is there not? Now we're not to... Remain silent. We're not just to keep this on the inside, but as Peter says here, always be ready, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for a hope that is in you, in gentleness and respect. That we're not to remain silent. That suffering oftentimes gives us the greatest platform in which to speak, in which to testify. Because you're suffering and as you go through it, it gives you credibility in the eyes of the world. They see that this faith is real, that it is deep-seated, it is genuine. That they don't see it, that you're just receiving something good from God's hands. And therefore, because you receive all this goodness, then oh, of course you follow him. Remember, that's what Satan said to God about Job. Does he serve you for nothing? Take it all away and surely he will curse you. And that's how the world sees it as well. That of course you follow Christ because you think you get something from it. But if they see you not getting anything from it and as a result actually receiving persecution and suffering, then they begin to say, well, why is that? 
When they see that you don't curse God or don't curse your circumstances or your life, that you don't abandon your faith, but actually your faith deepens in the midst of it, the natural reaction is why? What do they have that I do not? Where does this hope come from? When brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ are told to renounce Christ or to face imminent death and they do not do so and yet confess the name of Christ because they have a greater hope than even their present life demonstrates that there is something of depth. There's something of a richness that this present world can't give. That there is truly a hope within them. But brothers and sisters in 21st century America where we have it a lot more comfortable than a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. Do we have any less hope than them? Do we have any less of a savior than they do? Of course not. Therefore we need to be bold proclaimers. Both through our life and through our words that our hope is in Christ. That our hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. Our hope is in the kingdom that Christ will bring. Is that where your hope is this day? Not only the hope for yourself, but your hope for the world. If it's not, then we need to re-examine our life We need to ask, what is it that we're living for? What is it that we are hoping for? Because everybody has some type of hope. But is it the true and eternal hope? Is it the sure hope of the Lord Jesus Christ? And no matter what may come, nothing can take that away from us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that very familiar passage, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a man that has hope. It doesn't just look at his present circumstances but says that there is a love, there is a bond there that is greater than anything else in the entirety of this world. At the beginning I told you about the suffering that was brought upon this earth because of Adolf Hitler. One man that endured directly the suffering was a German Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was imprisoned and, and later hanged for treason to the Nazi party. And while in prison, he wrote this, Pain is a holy angel who shows us treasures that we would otherwise forget or would remain hidden. Through it, men and women have become greater than through all the joys of this world. It must be so, and I must tell myself this in my present situation over and over again. And yet there's an even holier angel than the one of pain. And that is the one of joy in God. 
notice what Bonhoeffer is saying there. It's not the joy in this world. No, it's joy in God. And that hidden treasure is brought about through pain. And it was said of Bonhoeffer as he was being gathered to be brought to the gallows that he told one of his fellow inmates, well, this is the end. But for me, it's just the beginning of life. And as one witnessed his execution, that of a Nazi doctor, he later testified that in his 50 years of working as a doctor, he had hardly ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. And why was that? Well, I think it was because Bonhoeffer was not robbed, even in the gallows, even in death of that greater hope and joy in Christ. And so as we come to this table this morning, as we get to once again taste and see that the Lord is good, that this is the true place of our hope, even in the midst of our suffering, that God is faithful, that He has not abandoned us or left us. Instead, He died for us. There we have hope. That He suffered for our sake. And that suffering gives all of our suffering meaning. As Bonhoeffer said, only the suffering God can give help to other sufferers. And surely that is what we find here. We find help, we find hope, we find blessing from Christ's suffering and even in our own.